Israel of God. If you've, if you've read chapter 6, uh, that's the phrase that Paul uses. And so we're actually in the last section here studying the part where Paul says, See, I write with my own hand. See with what lar- large letters I write. And so I would say that whatever he's doing in this last section is a summation of the book, of all that's come before. Let me uh, let me set the scene a little bit. My understanding is that the Bible is always addressing uh, a similar problem. So, if you read Genesis, that uh, the fall of man was into a fall into knowing as a way of being. Um, so the knowledge of good and evil was a means to attain a good, uh, or rather to, to uh, attain uh, being, or to, to attain God. So my reading of the human project is that humankind is always doing the same thing. Establishing being on the basis of knowing, or establishing epistemology, or using epistemology to establish ontology. And by knowing here, we don't just mean the intellectual kind, but certainly it's not exclusive of that, but it's a technique, you know, it's a holistic thing for gaining being. Um, And so the question that I think as we go into this last section of Galatians, Galatians has done a a huge thing. Uh, And I think if we we need to ask just a a basic question, question and I'll try to answer it and I think the book answers it is our salvation something that is primarily concerned with what and how we know or is it primarily an alternative way of being are human beings primarily knowers or beings Uh, to state it in in a different way that maybe everybody gets the answer is knowing Jesus primarily an intellectual act or is it one of participation in the Trinity in a sense I think that the way that we understand the answers to these questions will be determinative of the way that we've read the book of Galatians so as we look at back over the book as a whole we faced the basic issue uh, he's, by the way, never mentioned salvation. Did you notice? No salvation, at least explicitly talked about. But what he has described is something, I think, that's more all-encompassing than simply the way that we often think about getting saved or changing our religion. And the way he describes it here in this last section is new creation. Neither, circum, neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And of course, circumcision and uncircumcision are for Paul exhaustive categories. That includes everybody, right? That includes everything. That includes every technique, that includes the law or not the law. And yet he says these strategies, these techniques, all of this is not anything. What is, and the point is that Uh, the new creation is what he's been describing. 
And Paul, as he takes pen in hand, of course, he's very upset about these agitators who come in. And he takes one more shot at the agitators. He says they want to avoid the cross. In 6.12, they want to avoid persecution, apparently. They want to continue to live by the former principles which mark them. Paul says they want to boast in your flesh by forcing you into getting circumcised. And the, the way that I, I think we can picture this in terms of the way we've just looked at Paul's purposes, they do not want to abandon the world with which they are familiar to enter the new creation. They do not want to follow Paul's example that he lays out but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He said something very similar early in the book, but this is the point, this is the place that you enter new creation. This is the way that we become uh, you know, new subjects in Christ. But their confidence is in the flesh and their boasting is their way of being. I don't think this is just these people's peculiar problem, but as I read, you know, went back to Genesis, I think this is just always the human predicament, that we would manipulate the flesh, we would manipulate, you know, use techniques, use understanding so as to get, gain divine status. And their, very, their, pro, their boast contains, you know, the element of pride that is directly addressed by the cross of Christ. So Paul says, oh, I boast, but I boast only in the cross of Christ. I don't boast uh, about being Jewish. Paul, in a, he, he does something here, and he does a, there's a similar passage, and I thought it was very interesting. Let me read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. Consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many not not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Um, this sounds a lot like what's he, what he's saying in this passage uh, and that he said elsewhere in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. He's used the language of nothing and something. He says these people think they're something when they're nothing. And what they would do is take what is truly something and reduce it. They would nullify it. They would make it nothing. The point here is Paul's talking ontology. He's talking being. Uh, The idea of an alternative creation is an alternative being. Creation from that which is not, you know, is creation ex nihilo. He says we would nullify 
this is his, his picture in Romans 7, nullify, you know, the I has died. He said the same thing in Galatians. It's no longer the I that live, but it's Christ that lives within me. So that which seems to be something is nothing at all. And boasting in the cross is the abandonment of one way of doing identity. And to turn to the law is to make nothing, to nullify the grace of God. So we're not called to a new technique, a new religion, or simply a a different way of knowing. Paul's described this from the opening of the book. You remember how Galatians opened? Uh, He gave himself for sin so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. That is, it's uh, an entire epic. It's an, an entire cosmos. It's an alternative creation that we've been called to. He says in 2 Corinthians, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So what the gospel is doing is it's not just calling people to a new way of being religious. It's not really even about being saved if we're thinking you know salvation of souls dying or but it's a new way of being god's people uh maybe it's even that's inadequate that it's nothing short of new creation um nt wright says a new world has come into being and everything appears in a new light within it so the way that Paul uses similar language in 1 Corinthians. He says, you know, if you're married, you know, or you're in a particular position, act as if not. So I think the similar thing here at the end of Galatians. We should no longer stake our lives on marriage, weddings, funerals, asceticism, uh, but on new creation. Invest only in this resurrection kind of life. Throughout I've and throughout Galatians and I followed this, Paul has been arguing then that we do away with any division. The Israel of God gets at that, doesn't it? What is the Israel of God? Well that's the Jew plus Gentile community that is universal, right? The Israel of God is referring to all people that have been brought in. It's a universal salvation or it's the salvation it's a singular community. It's not made up of, you know, uh, Jews and Gentiles any longer, but these people have been fused into one. So I, when we began the, the Galatians, I said the book is written to preserve unity. And the danger is that they'll fall back into doing identity through difference or doing identity through the knowledge of good and evil. So he's described this as uh, a one-family relationship uh, over and against the idea of two, you know, uh, the idea of circumcision dividing us. Uh, He's argued for a one-seed relationship that we're all of the seed of Abraham. Remember our little lecture, I did the lecture on the problem of the one and the many which is just the, the a way of stating the philosophical problem. 
he says that in Christ we've all been brought into oneness with God. God is only one, but we've been united through Christ into the Father. And so he describes that as a family. He describes it as the problem of, uh, or, or the resolution to Israelite history. You know, the, he's gone through Abraham and uh, Hagar and Sarah. Uh, that those, those which are many are incorporated into a unity. We could talk about this in terms of Christ. Christ is himself both an individual. You know, think of the way Paul does it in Romans 5. He's the uh, first Adam, but he's also the true Israel. Uh, That is that he is completing humanity, and we then are incorporated into his body as the new Israel. We've talked about the Galatian uh, heresy, the... Uh, you know, these Judaizers, Paul says, if you're going to keep the law, the logic of the law is uh, you want to be circumcised? Well, just keep on cutting. Uh, cut the whole thing off. The law disempowers. It divides. It ends in ultimate separation. Uh, the law marks the problem of alienation and sin. It shows us the problem. If you continue to cling to the law, it's like continuing to cling to separation, alienation. Think of the temple walls. That you know, It's just a system of dividedness. It's the Jew-Gentile divide. It's the male-female divide. You remember, you've studied the, the Jewish prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not a pagan Gentile. I thank you that I'm not a slave. I thank you that I'm not a woman in that order. Paul has undone that, right? He says there is no. He's done it in precisely that order. There is no Jew-Gentile. There is no slave-free. There is no male-female. He has created an alternative prayer, you know, an alternative understanding. Where's that prayer found? That's just a Jewish uh, traditional prayer that we think Jews contemporary to. Do you know, Jake, if it's found somewhere? Oh, I didn't know that it was... Yeah, it's... it's so while they're looking for that, I have a question. Yeah. Um, so, if circumcision caused uh, like a division, a separation, how does baptism not cause that separation? Like the physical act of... Where, where's the line drawn there? Well, the, the picture of uh, Judaism and the circumcision, uh, it, it, of course, was a, a sign of an ethnic relationship and not a real-world covenant, you know, keeping real-world heart change. And so ethnic Judaism uh, was a division that accentuated alienation. Uh, And so that's why that baptism is not on the order of circumcision, because baptism, we're saying, is the accomplishment of a incorporating into a united family. It is the fulfillment of the the change of heart that was promised in circumcision, 
that is then bringing into the adoption of the family. Um, and so where ethnic Judaism is a uh, accentuation of a division, baptism is then a, a real-world resolution uh, that there, it is not a marker of difference, but it's a marker of incorporation into a unity. You want to do something with that, Michael? I was thinking of First Peter, where baptism is uh, where a believer is baptized into the death of Christ. So it's in all of this inclusiveness into this one body. Yeah, Titus talks about a real world washing, that we really are cleansed. Uh, it is a real. Uh, that that we do receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that incorporates us into one body. So uh, the the unity that we have is not on the base, basis of an ethnic unity, but it, and it's not even a genetic unity, but it's something better than being a genetic brother and sister. It's that we are now incorporated into the body of Christ as spiritual brothers and sisters. We share the gift of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. I think it's a different kind of division. Maybe? Because it's not an ethnic thing. Yeah. It's a decision thing. And then people have gotten irresponsible. Mm-hmm. And lost sight of the true thing. I, did, I used to do a thing in my basic theology class that uh, both the Catholic Church and the uh, the uh, event uh, uh, the ecumenical what is the uh, uh, they they've done there have been several studies that are kind of inclusive of every Christian group and even though we, there may be differences in the purposes mode of baptism in almost every group there is the recognition of uh, of baptism and the and in some way the necessity of having passed through baptism. Now, what that is and what the mode is, but so that's the beginning of an answer. But not that's not a very good answer. But I, I like my first answer better. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and that is that what's happening in baptism uh, is. Uh, I guess I like the way I interpreted your question. <laughs> <laughs> That uh, that baptism accomplishes what circumcision could not. Christ accomplishes what the law could not. Now, I think as Christians, as w- I think we we are subject to the same temptation that we're subject to legalism and subject to falling back to doing identity through difference, uh, falling back. And as we do that, then we're going to make of Christianity uh, something that it you know we're going to make it a new kind of legalism or new kind of law. So now that is in no way to say that there are not essentials to Christian faith, uh, but uh, the the way the manner this is this is sort of what the whole book of Galatians is about. You got people that are entering in and saying they're re-narrating the story of Christianity, and they're saying, "Wait a minute, we got to be circumcised." 
they would divide the body. Paul is, he, he's, he's making a theological argument. And I guess that's what we need to do, is that where we have division, we need to restate the gospel in such a way that we take account of what may be, you know, in the case of the Judaizers, clearly was heresy. And so there is the clear division between what, you know, Paul is saying and what these Judaizers are saying. But I don't think that's the sort of, that's not a, a division on the order. that With Judaizers, what you would get is just continual divisiveness and exclusion. They want to do identity on the basis of who's excluded. The church does not do identity by who's not in or who. You know, the church is the only human community that I know of that is based on or founded for people who are not in it, in it. We're primarily, we exist as much for people outside as people inside. Did you find it, Dalton? It's not. There's no such thing. <laughs> it might just be in Jewish tradition. I think it was in Jewish tradition. There may be something reflected in that. Yeah, it, it's a lot of the same idea. Same Thank idea. you for not, me not being like this tax collector. Yeah. In the instance of Jesus' parables, you had a tax collector sinner. Okay. I imagine Uh, the way that Paul puts it, that Scripture has shut up everyone under, under sin. He's actually he says actually it shut up everyone under the law, that it's uh, that we might be delivered. And of course, the image is that the purposes of the law is to transport what is in fact a kind of immature person, a child, to the place that they're going to learn. If we think in terms of humanity, this is Irenaeus that, you know, he pictures that man is always has been created to be incorporated into Christ, but he passes through a period of immaturity, and the law then was kind of the period in which uh, that process is brought to completion and fulfillment in Christ. And so Paul says, why would you go back to doing identity on this? In other words, it would be going backward. It would be going back to a system that all it did was divide and mark and, and accentuate sin. So what God is doing through Christ is the fulfillment of creation's purpose. Uh, we don't, uh, it's not an understanding we create for ourselves. Uh, the knowledge which, which Paul, you know, this is the difference between a Lutheran understanding and I think the, the right understanding that Paul, what Paul lacked was not that he must have faith rather than works, but that Jesus is indeed the messianic agent of the God of Israel, the faithful one raised from the dead in whom the righteousness that comes from God is disclosed. Uh, and so, uh, it's not that Paul discovers an inner disposition of faith as opposed to striving to please God. That would be like a change in religion. What he's discovered is an alternative way of being. 
so we talked about, uh, you know, the, I, I made a fairly, I thought it was a fairly provocative statement. The organizing principle of evil is righteousness. That is, who are the people who killed Christ? Are they people who just set out to be evil? Or they are, are they the people like Paul describes that would establish a righteousness of their own? In other words, there is no greater evil than having killed the Son of God. They didn't set out to do this, you know, just like the Joker set out to destroy Gotham. They set out to do this to, to set up an alternative to the right. They, they are zealous, Paul says, but their zeal lacks knowledge. Uh, so this is not immorality. In other words, what is more evil? Human immorality, or this is a, another provocative way of saying it, or human morality. What is more evil, human religion or human irreligion? Uh, what is more evil? You know, we could keep going. Human, the way that we organize ourselves into cultures or in, you know, I think that the point being that uh, our morality is our immorality. Our righteousness is our unrighteousness. Our religion is that which would displace and cast out God. Um, so Paul says I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me this isn't something we accomplish it's not simply a in other words it's a complete change up Christ died you know we, we can do religion we can do Galatians we can do Christianity one of two ways Christ died so I don't have to uh, and and we talked about an entire system that would focus on divine wrath in divine satisfaction. And so his death is the means that we might put to death what I would say the enslaving dynamic of the eye. Divine wrath does not fall on those who take up crosses. Rather, this is precisely the, pray, the place that we are made right. So what's happening on the cross? Is it the you know, the wrath of God revealed from heaven? No, that's the righteousness of God. That's God making things right. That is uh, not in the payment of a penalty, but in the escape from bondage and entry into a new family. Um, so the knowledge, uh, one, it's one world traded for another. Uh one of the last lectures that we did was from uh, the chapter 5, verse 25. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Um, that according, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to go on in the same way as Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who binds us together as a body. The Holy Spirit is the reality of uh, being incorporated into the body of Christ. So when Paul says the Israel of God at the end of the book, here's true Israel. You remember it, when we did Romans 9 to 11, there's that confusing passage at the end of 11 that says all Israel shall be saved. 
And the point, I did a whole sermon on this last week that was not very good. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, it's a, it was a good thought, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, the idea, though, is the same idea that's here. That the Israel of God is the Israel that all Israel will be saved. Who's all Israel? That is the universal salvation. So he's not doing anything different in Romans and Galatians. So if we talked about this in terms of a meta-narrative and a narrative, you know, the meta-narrative is for Paul, the exodus from Egypt, the exodus from bondage. And so when he says the true Israel, the Israel of God, the image is that as a people we've been delivered from the bondage of sin and he's talked about that um, so it's not uh, in, in a sense we can do this both at an individual level in Romans you know you have the individual I think in 6 to 8 that's talked about the individual struggle 9 to 11 is a corporate identity uh, so that our personal story and the corporate story come together, right? We understand who we are in Christ on the basis of a corporate identity. I think we could reverse that and say, your little struggles you have in your head with your you know, sin and neurosis, that's also part of a universal predicament. It's just that sin isolates, sin alienates. And so it... The, our experience of sin doesn't incorporate us into a, you know, a body of people. It alienates us and it uh, fractures us even within. Um, so he's argued throughout for the single family, the single table, a single fellowship on the basis of a single God in whom we've all been brought into a single body. And this unified order is the alternative to dualism, to binaries, to Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, free. I think that is the story of Scripture. What's the human problem? Uh, it is that we've fallen into various ways of doing identity through difference. You can call that dualism. You can call it division, alienation. You can call it a creation out of chaos. You know, the way that Genesis, I think that, that Trent could do a whole talk on this. Uh, but he's leaving. <laughs> We're never going to hear this talk. That in Genesis, you have a counter-myth. You know, how, does, how do most creation stories go? Well, in most creation stories, a god gets killed or there is a conflict and out of that conflict are the body of the god in the case of the Enuma Elish, the canopy of the heavens are established. That sort of dualism is cosmic, but it's also private and personal. I do what I do not want to do. and So... Uh, the resolution that we see in, in uh, Galatians is this idea. You're unified. You've been made one. You're, you're a unity. Don't let the law or the Judaizers enter back in and ruin this. 
So when he, at the end of 15 to 16, he says, there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Then listen to the next sentence. And those who walk by this rule have peace and mercy, or rather peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Why do they have peace and mercy? Well, it follows directly because there's no longer circumcision nor uncircumcision. They're no longer doing identity through difference, no longer doing identity on the basis of the law. But they're a new creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not an original violence. It's an original peace. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There is recreation. Uh, So it's not a continual agonistic struggle. Your life does not have to be a continual agonistic struggle with sin. It can be peace and mercy. Paul at the end says, Show mercy and peace upon us. And N.T. Wright says, he he seems like he's rewriting a prayer here. Uh, He's certainly rewritten. We talked about the Shema, right? Do you know the Shema? Hero Israel. Lord your God is one. Love and play your heart and mind on your strength. And he rewrites the Shema. Uh, for us there is but one God the Father from whom are all things and we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through him. He does. He plays with the Shema in several places in both Corinthians and Romans. You realize this is, this is kind of heavy stuff. You're messing with people's sacred prayers. And what Paul's doing is incorporating Christ into this prayer that they recited on a daily basis in Galatians he doesn't exactly rewrite the Shema but he says now there is uh, God is one only and so he's em- the em- emphasis on unity begins with monotheism um, and I were talked about the rewriting of the I thank the Lord that I'm not a heathen you know uh this is the last thing I'm going to say, then we'll read the verse. But So at the end of the book, this little thing, grace and mercy, or great, uh, peace and mercy, rather. He's referenced Isaiah 54 previously, and so it seems like he may, in fact, be referencing Isaiah 54, 10 to 13. And listen to this. This is the picture of new creation. This is picture of new Jerusalem. We've talked about echoes, right? Everybody understand the idea of of when a New Testament writer references an Old Testament passage, he's referencing the entire context, right? Because most people would know the reference. Here is what I think the peace and mercy is referencing. Isaiah 54, 10 to 13. For the mountains may be removed and the hills. Oh, there you go again. (laughs) I'm from the hills of Kentucky. (laughs) And the hills may shake. But my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. And then he goes on to describe this new foundation, the new Jerusalem 
You're no longer storm-tossed. You've attained peace. Uh, He's describing new creation, new Jerusalem. He's referenced the Jerusalem of the air, the spiritual Jerusalem, and here at the end, the Israel of God, and referencing again the Isaiah passage. All right, let's read uh, the passage. Uh, We're at verse 11, right? Let's read verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And the point, we all know the point, right? That he's using an amanuensis, he's using a secretary, but at this point he wants to authenticate the letter is from him. Why would he write with such big letters? Probably he's got something wrong. You know, he talks about being afflicted, that he's prayed that this affliction would be taken away. And many people think it has to do with his eyesight. Uh, that he, uh, he, he, uh, he uses a, a, an amanuensis in part, uh, maybe because he can't, he can't see to write. That's speculation. There's another, so... Uh, but the, the point here is that this is so important to him, these last few words, that he wants to write it himself. And then Christian, uh, give us one more verse. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be perse- persecuted for the cross of Christ. This is kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Why would circumcision mean they're not persecuted? Legal to be a Jew where they were, maybe? It's a matter of people pleasing and like I mean I my thoughts are automatically all the things that people do to avoid harshness or judgment, probably not the severest persecution, that they don't necessarily agree with just to shut someone up and so the circumcision the idea of the Jews. Well, why originally why Christians got persecuted was because the Jews were making such a fuss about it that it brought so much attention that they were just like, well, these stupid Christians keep causing all these problems. The Jews never were a problem mm-hmm. until these Christians. Came. Am I wrong? No, no, no. I I, no, you're right. I, I think that's that, in my brain. So that your brain, your brain's from. telling you good things. Uh, that that. Uh, the the order of the day, Judaism, I think both Jake and Sharon are right. That it, it is the recognized understanding. And the Judaizers are going to be themselves, they're looking to be accepted probably by the Jews, by the synagogue. Uh, maybe this, uh, you know, the, the division between the Christians and the, the Jewish synagogue is a process uh, that it may be that it's still in process. So I think it's both, we could, I, we could say it's a kind of easy answer. Well, they want to be like the Jews, but I think with Sharon, yeah, but it's also an existential thing that we're always going to fall into Judaizing. In other words, we want to follow the principles and powers of acceptance and not new creation. It's so much easier to be accepted. 
And I guess I've, I was, I've been thinking about this in terms of economics. I, you know, the last... Uh, uh, it, it's so easy to just fall into uh, trying to, you know, uh, value or valuing yourself according to the way the world values you. And that's by your income. You know, can you put a dollar sign on that? Oh, well, I hope that's not the way I'm valued. <laughs> you know, because there are not many dollars there. But in a sense, uh, the blessing that Faith and I have experienced is we've realized our utter dependence upon you all, on other people. That's been a beautiful thing for us. Uh, in, in a way, I think we almost have to experience that financially. In other words, if you don't, if you don't experience that as a body, if we don't experience that financial dependence upon one another, I don't. I don't mean to. In a way, I think that's almost a necessary part of the sharing. We've got to share at that level. What finances tend to do for us is make us independent. Uh, and if I got, if I'm financially independent, well, then I can be independent in every way. I don't need you people. And I think, you know, that's the, the situation that our culture is often in. And so as we've been made financially vulnerable, we, in a sense, it's, that's what creates the, we all need to feel that. I don't pray that on the rest of you. but why you all get fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's okay, we don't even have jobs to start with. <laughs> <laughs> This is, I think this is part of also the whole idea of, of sustainability and, and going back to doing, you know, working. A, I know it's a kind of an ornamental garden, but, uh, but we made the effort of, you know, I think that, that in a sense the, the return to a direct dependence on God is a, a return to the land. I think it's there. Again, I'm just seeing the vision. I'm not necessarily saying I got to practice them. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. But we got John Pierce and them who do the sustainability and they're amazing and other people take part in it. That's right. That's, That's right. That's not sustainability. I don't know what is. We're headed that way. We could just buy from John too. Yeah. <laughs> Jake, you want to read another verse? Yeah. We're 13, 13, 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Uh, in some way, boasting, you know, Paul, he, he talks about his, you know, if anybody wants to boast, let me boast. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, you know, Pharisee, I know, in regard to righteousness, in regard to the law, blameless. Uh, and so he, he many times talks about the boasting in the law, the boasting of the Jews. The, but it sounds a lot like John's pride of life, doesn't it? 
that what the law brings out is, in fact, I think, that infectious pride. And so our tendency will be either, I mean, I think there's two choices. We'll boast in the law or boast in our own capacities or we'll boast in the cross of Christ. All right, and then uh, Dalton, the last reading. Okay, verse 14. Yeah. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's pretty drastic, right? This is just as cosmic as John. Yeah, that it's trading one world for another world. He said, I've, it's, no, in, uh, it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives within me. Um, I'm ho- I hope you're getting what Paul is saying and what I think he's saying. This thing is holistic. This is everything about you. Uh, that either you do it one way or you do it another. And I think what we have to see is the unified nature of sin, that it always looks like this. And the resolution to it is not a partial resolution, but it's a holistic sweeping away of one world, one kind of subjectivity for another. And then verse... 15, 15, Miss Saxton. Okay. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. I already said it, but there's the binary, right? You can do binaries to the end of time. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, Japanese, you know, Nihon Jin, Gai Jin. You know, just keep on going. That's the way we do identity. But for Paul, this is the big binary. This is the identity through difference. And uh, when he, so what, what he's saying is this system of circumcision, uncircumcision, describes the human predicament, right? That's what the law did. It pointed to the human predicament of sin. New creation is obliterating, getting rid of, nullifying that system. I'm thinking right now, and it could be a bad thought, but perhaps even this whole issue with baptism, perhaps that itself is the wrong question. Perhaps when we ask, oh, do we is baptism necessary or not, and we spend time debating over it, perhaps that's not what we should be talking about. It's missing. It's maybe a part of becoming a new creation, mm-hmm. but it it's not the end all get all. And if we we miss a lot of being new creations when we focus on it, because we're asking the wrong questions and mm-hmm. focusing on the wrong things, but we need to revert our attention back to the gospels mm-hmm. and becoming a new creation, mm-hmm. or not even becoming. That's a bad word for it allowing God to recreate us. I think you're right, yeah. That that uh, the image itself 
is something that's done to us. You, know, you die, you're raised again. But the point is not the magic of baptism. The point is the alternative direction of the Christian life. It is a continual death, a continual resurrection. Uh, I don't want to change it up. I just think that's the way we do it. But it, it is sort of like the what we've said about the communion. Uh, is it the magic of the cracker in the juice? Or is it the presence of Christ uh, at uh, you know a, a joyous meal? And so I think that we what has happened in both Protestantism and Catholicism with sacramentalism, we've tended to take what is you know was meant to be this alternative community, an alternative way of life in which we eat differently, we fellowship differently, we do economy differently, and we turned it into something tiny and magical that you can do in your spare time. Here's your cracker, here's the juice, here's the sprinkle, now you're saved. <laughs> For this week. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to be sacrilegious, <laughs> but in a sense, I think we that this thing is bigger than we've made it. Uh, it's whole. It's it's. It, this should be an all-consuming thing for us, right? <laughs> They're all sprinkled. I'm so lost. You, you got. You see, you're, you're fixated on the food element here. <laughs> I can't help it. Dinner was good. All right. Uh, and then uh, verse. I can't even see the sixteen. And is it Maisie? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm taking too long. Aren't I? Paul's inventing new stuff here. He can do that, right? He's the apostle. But but I think you need to feel how revolutionary this is. I don't think anybody's ever uttered this phrase, Israel of God. But what he's, he's making a distinction between Israel the flesh, Israel the nation, Israel, uh, ethnic Israel, Israel that, you know, uh, is simply of the law. And so I think that what he's describing here is, what, as he's done it elsewhere, true Israel, spiritual Israel, the culmination of world history is to be found. The purposes of world history, according to a Christian understanding, are to be, und- are to be found in the Israel of God. There it is, there it is, it's all summed up. That the way that he's described world history in chapters Romans 9 to 11, I think he's doing a similar thing here. The Jews will be made jealous by the Gentiles. And that that movement is a continual movement. Right? That's not something that happens at the end of time. 
But Paul says that is what's occurring. This was the sermon that could have been on Sunday. And this didn't quite happen. I don't know what was going on there. But, uh, that just uh, Have you ever caught a kind of... I remember there's a Japanese writer. He describes a scene on a train. Who, is, who did it? Who wrote I Am a Cat? And it's just this little simple scene. He sees this this woman holding a baby. And the, the baby looks at him and kind of catches his attention. And then it, you know, it there the woman, the mother sees the man. And it's just this scene, this instantaneous scene that all the, it's just a glance, right? Just a glance. And yet, in that glance, there is this, you know, kind of coy look, jealousy on the part of one. And, and in a sense, that's Paul is describing human history in terms of this movement on the part of God uh, in which all of Israel then, the Israel of God, reconstitutes us uh, in a new fashion. Verse 17, Chris. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my own body the marks of Jesus. Okay, go ahead. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So, people bear marks on their body. Some bear the mark of circumcision. Some bear the mark of no circumcision. Paul says, well, I've got marks on my body. And these are the brand marks that he's, and the Greek here is that I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. That is, I think he's talking about the scars of persecution that mark him as being a, a, you know, under the ownership of Christ. So, he's directing this to the agitators. Don't agitate me. Don't try to mark me. I'm already marked. My ownership is clear. You know, who I belong to. And then he, that's the end of the Galatians. All right. Any comments, questions? With the whole Israel of God thing, it also, at least my first thought is, we always think the God of Israel, not Israel of God. And we Like, at least that's what, like, that phrase makes me think, oh, that's not how I'm used to hearing it. Mm-hmm. Because you think of God belonging to us rather than we belonging to God. And then it just kind of says, oh, maybe we've gotten this wrong. Maybe we should use this phrase a little bit more. I think it's a wonderful phrase. I don't know that it occurs. This may be the only place it occurs. I don't know. I didn't look it up. But it it is a unique phrase. And and as you're describing it, it turns everything on its head.